Welcome to the Thousand Voices Podcast. My name is Mujan Asgari, founder and CEO of Thousand Eyes on Me, and I'm your host for this podcast series. Each week, you will hear stories of fearless leaders and entrepreneurs to get inspired and learn how to become a successful leader. The following episode is made in collaboration with Women in AI as part of a series of interviews for Women in AI Awards Australia and New Zealand 2022. Before talking about our guest's incredible story, I would like to make an announcement. At Thousand Eyes and Me, we are supporting a new initiative called Thousand Faces to go even further in our mission to support women. Thousand Faces is an exclusive investment club using carbon-negative art NFTs to finance female-led projects. We are combining art, technology, diversity, and the environment. You can join our club at www.thousandfaces.art and follow us on our social media to learn more about our investment areas and exciting news. Today, I have a very special guest with me on the show. I would like to introduce you to Camille Goldstone-Henry. She is a wildlife scientist and the founder and CEO of Xyla Systems, a tech biodiversity startup. She is a descendant of Camilaro, which is the second largest nation on the eastern coast of Australia, indigenous tribes. As an experienced wildlife conservation manager, she has worked with the world's most endangered species, including the Tasmanian devil and Sumatran tiger. In 2020, she built a cloud-based platform to connect, track, and manage conservation projects. The platform aggregates data from various sources and provides insights into some of these conservation projects so that decision makers can optimize resources. Camille is on a mission to turbocharge wildlife conservation globally. She's the Women in AI Trailblazer 2022 winner and winner of the Women of the Future 2021 Awards. Camille, I'm so excited to have you on the show. On the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So where are you connecting today from? I'm connecting to you from lovely Bondi in Australia. Oh my God. So how, how is it there? How does it feel today there? Uh, it's winter here in the Southern, southern Hemisphere. Uh, but in Bondi, we had beautiful sunshine today. So when I say it's winter, it's also 16 degrees Celsius. So I can't really complain. Okay, I see that. Yeah, we're in France here. It's over, I think, 30 degrees. It's very, very hot this summer. And I'm just like dying to ask you this question since I got to know you. Can you explain how does it look like to be a Camilaroi? And what is the main beliefs and rituals that your tribe have? It's a fantastic question. And I think I'll have to take you through some of Australia's history to really help you understand what being Camilla Roy means for myself and my family. Uh, I would so, love that. Yeah, indi- Indigenous peoples in Australia, First Nations peoples, have been persecuted by colonisers since settlement in 1788. Unfortunately, what happened in the 1900s, uh, a lot of Indigenous children were taken away from their families and 
the government attempted to assimilate those children into white Australia. That's what we call the stolen generation here in Australia. So a lot of Australians with Indigenous descent actually have lost uh, their, their heritage ties, their ties to land and community and their mobs. So that's actually what happened for me and my family. And it only came out, I'd say about 20 years ago, my mum found out how significant our Indigenous heritage was. So we've spent about 20 years trying to understand our people and our mob. We have a totem animal, which is the sand goanna or, or the sand monitor, which is a really beautiful lizard that's found out in the desert here in, in um, Eastern Australia. And one of the most beautiful things that my stepdad did for my mother a couple of years ago was get her a beautiful sand monitor brooch. And, and that's how we're starting to find our ties back to the Indigenous community. So it's really fractured and we're still trying to find our way. So it's a journey for me and my family. Oh, wow. That's so inspiring. Are you from both of your sides, from your mother and father, from the Camilaroi or is it only from Just your my mother's side. Mm-hmm. So did did your mother know that she's coming from that tribe or just 20 years ago she learned that? 20 years ago she learned that. So because of what we call the White Australia policy where governments took Indigenous children away from their families and tried to integrate them, which then became oh, the stolen generation. Oh, so they generation. didn't actually know at all that they no, are from so they didn't know at all. Oh, my God. God. Yeah, oh. and so because of all of that destruction that the government caused here in Australia, the our Indigenous heritage was actually kept secret by my grandmother and my great-grandmother because they were ashamed of it. And that was quite common here in Australia for a long time. So there is a lot of work going on to re-establish ties between uh, families affected by the stolen generation and uh, country and mob in our heritage lands. And how do you yourself feel about being a descendant of Camilla Roy? It's part of who I am. It has been a huge journey to fully comprehend what it means for my family. It means something different to me versus what it means for my siblings, my sisters. But, you know, we are Camilleroy. We have Camilleroy blood flowing through us. We are Camilleroy. But we've essentially grown up white. We've, we've been brought up with white values in, in white Australia. So there is a conflict there of being too white to be Indigenous and being too Indigenous to be white. So it's a, it's one that I have to grapple with. Wow. I actually recently, just a year ago, um, got this big, huge opportunity to get to know some of the Indigenous tribes in the Amazon forest uh, in Peru, in Peruvian Amazon. And I just realized how much wisdom is there within these tribes and we when we're living in a western society we're just so blinded to to these values and we try to think that we know better than them and to try to change them or like give them lessons about our life about our technologies and I just like had this big realization that it's just <laughs> they have so much more wisdom than us like the indigenous tribes they were very connected yeah. to the nature they were really connected first to themselves and that's why they were connected to others to the, to the nature so they weren't hurting our environments 
and that was like a big eye opening for me. It's the same here in in Australia. Our Indigenous mob, we have a very strong connection to the land, which is what we call country. So a really strong connection to land. And if you've seen the environmental devastation that's happened here in Australia, before European colonisation, Indigenous communities kept our environment flourishing for 40,000 years. It's the Indigenous culture here is one of the oldest in the world and they managed our landscapes so, so well. And it's only in the last 200 years that they've just been decimated. So from an Indigenous perspective, it's really sad to watch, but it's really important that we bring Indigenous voices to managing our environment into the future. How many Indigenous tribes are there in Australia? You know oh, that's that? a great question, and I don't know off the top of my mm. head. And do you do you know how many Kamilarai uh, people are left there? It would be hard to say, but quite a lot. There's still a lot of communities on land uh, in the Kamilarai country, and we're also dispersed all across Australia because it is one of the largest mobs. Mm-hmm. What are basically maybe some of the activities or efforts that the tribes are doing in conservation of the nature in Australia? Do you have any... Is there any particular activity they are doing to help to maybe open the eyes of the government or in international communities? Yeah, I think one of the biggest practices from our Indigenous communities, and the world would have seen this in 2019-2020 when we had the largest bushfires sweep across Australia, it, they, those fires displaced three billion, displaced or killed, sorry, three billion animals. And it's because we don't have proper fire management practices here in Australia anymore. Indigenous communities for hundreds of thousands of years managed the landscape and did what we call backburning, so hazard reduction burning in a mosaic pattern to ensure that there wasn't too much overgrowth in our bush. Unfortunately, that practice hasn't been upheld and now we're starting to see these wide, sweeping, broad, extremely impactful hazardous fires like we saw in 2019-2020. So I know that there's been a huge government push to bring that mosaic practice, that mosaic Indigenous practice back into hazard reduction burning to help safeguard our environment. There's also uh, a really big push um, at the moment to bring in an Indigenous treaty. I think we're only, Australia is only one of two of all of the Commonwealth countries to not have a treaty with their Indigenous peoples. So we've actually got a really long way to go here in Australia in bringing Indigenous voices and not only how we manage our landscapes and our environment, but across our entire society. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. I, I just remember at that time that there was like the fire happening. I was in Davos. That was actually the last conference I was doing before the pandemic. It was basically around January. They were talking about the whole disaster happening out there. And of course, like in Europe, it was winter. In, and still in the winter, it was very hot that, that year. Uh, Switzerland normally is just like buried under s- snow at that time. And I just remember I was watching this reporting of PwC showing how disastrous was was the fire and how many animals we had lost. And it was just like very sad and heartbreaking to see that. And I saw actually so many 
um, indigenous people and basically normal people going out there volunteering to save the animals and try to recover. Do you see that any like improvements since there that has happened, for example, to plant trees or recover the parts of the nature that was lost? Did you did you see anything that happening that could could help that? With those fires in 2019, 2020, they were so widespread that there was a lot of regeneration activity that was required. I think there were some really innovative and cool initiatives that came out from some incredible conservation organisations here in Australia. One of the leading ones being Taronga Zoo. They deployed uh, in partnership with National Park, our National Park Service a bunch of helicopters to go out to some of the most fire affected areas just south of Sydney here where there's an endangered rock wallaby uh, and they started spreading feed from helicopters to ensure those critically endangered species had access to food in areas that were so badly burnt they didn't have access to the food that they needed and in some cases even the water that they needed anymore. So there was a lot of really cool initiatives coming from groups like Taronga. There's another really great startup here uh, called Airseed and they're currently using drones and seed pods where they send drones out with these seed pods and drop them into the, the land, into the highly burnt areas to regrow trees. And I've just... In times of crisis, you see this incredible innovation come out and it really does give you hope. But I'm also hoping that we don't see bushfires like that before and we can enact real change, particularly for climate change, before we get to that point again. Yeah, that's so true. Like when we're talking about, for example, solving the climate change, um, like we're talking a lot about carbon offsetting. I mean, that's one, for example, solution to to stop the overwhelming global warming. But another thing is to really stop our already existing forests to not get burned more than that. So in California, you know, in Australia, in, in Portugal, this is happening as of now that like we're talking. So this this is just so important and it's very difficult also to manage it. But I hope and I wish like with AI, with help of technologies, we can really come up with solutions that we can stop that. Yeah, I really hope so too. And as much as I would like to say there are, there definitely are areas here that regenerating from those bushfires, there were some areas that were really badly burnt that it's still quite sad to drive through, particularly in an area called the Blue Mountains, just west of Sydney. It was so badly burnt that you can drive through there now and still see the devastation. You can see it slowly regenerating, but it just shows the incredible impact that these bushfires have and also the incredible impact that climate change is having on our environment. So, yeah, I absolutely agree that we need to find ways of getting to net zero as soon as possible. So my question is, I, I'm curious to know what's your vision about saving the you know, biodiversity, about our forests, about our, our nature. What, what's your take on that? What are the projects that you're involved in that, uh, with your company, for example, Xyla Systems? Uh, I have like such a huge vision for biodiversity and, and how we can tackle the extinction crisis. And we've already mentioned the potential of technology here, but I really really do believe that technology is a huge opportunity for us to tackle 
the biodiversity crisis and the extinction crisis globally. My vision with Xylo Systems is to use the power of data and AI to turbocharge wildlife conservation around the world. So how can we leverage technology like data analytics and augmented intelligence and AI decision support to increase the speed and reduce the cost of saving species. I came up with the idea for Xylo Systems in 2020 and it was really born out of my own frustrations working as a conservation scientist here in Australia and it's like this around the world as well. A lot of conservation organisations, academics, governments working to save our species are often working with really constrained resources like funding. So my first vision is how can we make those resources go as far as possible using technology? One of the projects that we're working with, and I've already mentioned this organization previously, Taronga Zoo here in Sydney, uh, the iconic Taronga Zoo. If you haven't heard of it, definitely look it up. It's on Sydney Harbour and is probably one of the most stunning zoos in the world. We're working with them on a critically endangered snail species. And this snail species is found on an offshore island just off the east coast of Australia here called Norfolk Island. And they don't know anything about this species. It was presumed extinct until a few years ago when uh, some academic teams found some small populations. So Taronga Zoo is heavily involved in creating an insurance population on the grounds here in Sydney of this snail. But they're having a bit of tr trouble with the breeding program because they don't know anything about this species. So at the moment, they're flying out uh, ecologists to collect data in the wild, but flying staff out to these locations is not only resource intensive, it also takes a lot of time and results in delayed data. So we can't actually action insights from the environmental data fast enough to improve the breeding program. So we're working with Taronga to deploy remote sensing technologies on the island so we can get real-time information on relative humidity, temperature, soil acidity, light, so that we can better understand this species. And what this actually allows us to do is take what was originally going to be a six-month project and stretch it to be a two-year project because instead of flying people out to the island to monitor, monitor this snail, we can now do it remotely and significantly reduce the cost of the project. So it just goes to show the impact that technology can have in extending our resources. Wow, that's so fascinating. And so do you think that by having more data and having more, I mean, analyzing more data about our biodiversity, could we come up with some solutions that can benefit us from maybe the pace of destruction or like finding some ways that we can navigate the crisis or even maybe we can have like recovered the loss by diversity. Do you, do you think this is possible? I do. And that was really one of my visions in beginning Xylo Systems. Again, off the back of those major bushfires here in Australia, I wondered if we had the full picture of what was happening with our habitats, our ecosystems, our species, could we have enacted intervention strategies for endangered species that majorly affected by those bushfires before, during and after the fires? 
I think data gives us an incredible opportunity to have a 360 degree view of what's happening on the ground. And so my vision is to be able to give everyone, no matter if you're an ecologist working in the ground or a diplomat making decisions on the international level around biodiversity and threatened species, I want to give everyone the tools to be able to see every single level of com conservation and make decisions about it. So it's really giving that bird's eye view, but being able to drill down into the detail when you need to. And data can definitely allow us to do that. Yeah, yeah. I I actually wanted to ask you this question. You mentioned the policymakers and governance. We also talked about indigenous ancient wisdoms. What do you think we could do with the ancient wisdom and bringing them to the policymakers, to scientists, and imagine that Zala Systems and this platform that we can provide decision makers with very, very, you know, curated, important information to, to be able to make right decisions for our world. How do you think this collaboration could happen between our societies as indigenous people and, you know, the policymakers? What is your vision? Yeah, it's a really interesting question and we're definitely grappling with that ourselves. How do we best bring in Indigenous knowledge to environmental decision making and how do we best bring Indigenous knowledge into the technology that we're building? And I think this is a great point to touch on the importance of diversity in developing technology and specifically AI algorithms. So we do have a vision, a plan to develop AI algorithms for conservation decision support in the next few years. And key to that will be capturing Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous voices in that decision making. Our Indigenous people have an incredible ability to track the seasons, to track what species are doing, to know how the ecosystem is operating just through the knowledge that they've passed down through generations and the knowledge that our ancestors have held for us and bring down to us. So I think there is an incredible opportunity to bring together technology, policymakers, and our Indigenous voices to have a truly holistic approach to how we tackle this incredibly huge problem. And I don't think we will be successful unless we bring those ind Indigenous voices in. Because like I mentioned already, our Indigenous people here in Australia have safeguarded our environment and in fact helped it flourish for over 40,000 years. So what they have done is right. And I think we need to go back to more Indigenous ways of thinking to manage our environment. Yeah, it, it actually just reminded me a documentary I saw a few months ago. I don't remember the name, but it was a documentary about indigenous knowledge linked to the climate change. And basically the filmmaker was going into the indigenous tribes in Colombia and and interviewing them and talking to them, living with them. And the tribes were saying, hey, so basically the road that you're creating on the mountain up there is actually, you know, uh, creating some problems with the lake a couple of kilometers away from there. And then we can know that by the movements of these crabs on the shore, the way they actually move and like um, basically uh, they swim at a certain time coming out of water, that's how we know that. And, you know, to us, this type of wisdom, this type of information, they're just 
nonsense. We don't understand it in modern cities, but <laughs> the indigenous people, they have been living with that for years and years and that that knowledge had been passed by. So I can just imagine that if you could collect these data and create models that we also could understand that, that would be fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting uh, using this indigenous wisdom to understand the changes in our environment, particularly when it comes to climate change. But there's also the opposite effect happening where we have in our Indigenous community here in Australia, we call the wisdom that's passed down through generations and from our ancestors' dreamtime stories. And so these dreamtime stories tell us about what's happening in the environment. And there are actually now some instances where dreamtime stories and our understanding of the environment are being altered as a result of climate change. So a really good example here in Australia is there's a very famous river called the Murray River, a very important ecosystem, very important habitat, and very important to the Indigenous people that inhabit that land. There's a Dreamtime story that says a the turtles arrive at a certain time of year because that's when a certain insect arrives and dragonflies arrive and, and certain birds come to feast on those insects, as do the turtles. But as climate change begins to take a hold, those turtles and birds and dragonflies are now all coming to the Murray River at different times of the year. So you can start to see how this has an effect on Indigenous stories that have been passed down for generations. And it's really, really devastating for those mobs to see. Wow. Yeah. It's just that the nature is just full of, you know, harmony and little details that we unfortunately cannot see that because it's just beyond our understanding sometimes unless we really open our consciousness and just, you know, see the effects. And I, I don't know if that's possible to see the whole dynamic, but every corner of the world, every corner of our nature we focus on, it's just another universe in it. And there's so many, it, the universe is just dancing, you know, and we just need to see that. That's so true. <laughs> I'm so curious to know, how did you end up in AI? So what was your basically personal journey into the very, very technical, very fast advancing industry such as AI? I'm really new to AI, to be completely honest. I had the problem that I wanted to solve with Xylo Systems and that problem was around inefficiencies and ineffectiveness in the way that we do conservation, how we manage wildlife and how we pursue our conservation goals. There's a lot of duplication of efforts, a lot of siloed efforts. And that's really the problem I was trying to solve for conservation and the problem that I had and became frustrated with in my conservation career. And it just so happened that I came across artificial intelligence through my university studies. So I'm currently studying an MBA. I'm almost finished. I'm pretty excited to be done. And I focused on a lot of technology subjects and 
being a scientist, having a background in science and biology, I've always been a self-professed data nerd. I love statistics. I love data. But I hadn't really dabbled in artificial intelligence until 2020 when I started taking more technology-specific subjects as part of my MBA. And that's when I started learning about how other industries were using artificial intelligence, how medicine was using artificial intelligence to help diagnose patients, how the retail industry was using artificial intelligence to provide extremely personalized customer experiences or perhaps apply artificial intelligence to convince customers to buy more. And that's when I kind of thought that artificial intelligence can probably be used for good and artificial intelligence can definitely be applied to some of the challenges that we're seeing in artificial intelligence. So that really kickstarted my AI journey and I've just been learning so, so much ever since then. <laughs> wow, that's such an exciting journey. What is your main challenge today? Like what, what is the thing you need today in order to succeed and in order to make silo systems very successful global solution to, to help even like, you know, every single country in the world? Oh, so many challenges. I mean, if we talk to, to an AI specific challenge right now, we're dealing with endangered species. And when you're dealing with endangered species, you're dealing with smaller data sets because they're smaller population sizes. So we're currently uh, struggling with the challenge of training AI algorithms using smaller data sets. And one of the ways in which we're overcoming this at the moment is using historical data sets so that we can bolster the current data sets that we have for specific endangered species. So getting over that AI hurdle for endangered species is a big one. Talking to more of the startup specific challenges and the challenges that we have in achieving our overall vision, and I think any startup will say this, is around resources. So capital to help us invest in the talent that we need to scale our technology. At the moment, it's just myself and my co-founder working on this technology. So we're a small, mighty team of two women working <laughs> on a huge problem with some really complex technology systems. We're currently raising money right now, but raising money as a entirely female-led startup has a lot of challenges. There's a lot of unconscious bias due to investors and venture capital firms being majority men. So securing the capital that we need to bring our vision to reality and to scale this technology globally uh, is the biggest hurdle that we need to overcome in the next six months. Oh, wow. I, I definitely hear you and I definitely uh, empathize with that problem. I know that actually the global number for full female-led startups to raise VC funds is 2.2% out of the whole VC funds raised globally, which is like basically nothing. And uh, we have so much, you know, lack of diversity in, in investment in, in, you know, um, various industries that that actually amplifies it. One of the most problems is that we don't have enough female investors to invest in women. Uh, I have a good news for you because with our full female co-founding team with my basically me and my sister and 
a group of colleagues that we have from Women AI and Thousand Eyes Elmi, we are creating an investment club to invest in female founders. So that is going to... That's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and our focus is on basically green projects, uh, environmental projects. So your project can definitely fit in that category. And and we would love to support female founders like yourself and your colleague. So definitely keep it up and follow us on our social media. It's called thousandfaces.art. And we're going to officially launch in September. So you can, yeah, you can uh, definitely be a member of our community. Our idea is to have a DAO, basically decentralized organization for the fund. On our board, we have a very diverse team. So myself personally was chasing more female VCs to join the board. So eventually we can have actually more women than men. And in that way, we can create I mean, that in that way, we can create a balance, I would say, if you have more women mm-hmm. to be able to attract more also women and founders to to the community. So, yeah. Well done. That's so exciting. And I think women supporting women is the most magical thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that we all need more, you know, basically sisterhood, um, helping each other. And it doesn't matter where we are in the world. We are basically all from the same source and from the same, you know, uh, origins. And I really believe in that. So I would love to be able to support you. And yeah, just <laughs> let's let's just build basically things together to also help ourselves because helping the environment, helping others, at the end, it just serves ourselves. Exactly. And I think that's the most important piece that I'm always trying to get across to anyone that asks about about Xyla Systems and the work that we're doing is that we're doing what we do because we need to preserve our world for future generations and we're really doing it for ourselves as, as a race, as human society, because the biggest message that we're always trying to get across is that we need to preserve biodiversity because that's how we preserve ourselves as a species. Without biodiversity, we don't have clean air. We don't have fresh water. We don't have a global food system. We don't have an economy. Uh, so really, the environment is us and we all need to take care of each other. I think that's a perfect closing to our conversation, Camille. Thank you so much for joining me today on the show. It was an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It was fantastic to talk to you. Thousand Voices is a production of Thousand Eyes on Me. It is hosted by myself, Mujan Askari. Our supervising director is Aruna Patam. Our producer is Raul Kumar. Our technical director is Ashish Mittal. And our design director is Nusha Askari. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Thousand Voices podcast. Join our community to find out more about our guests and our leadership programs on our website, www.thousandeyeson.me. Until next time.